today on Ag News Daily. The beauty about the power of meat is that it's actually been uh, 15 years of trends in the power of meat. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here, co-host of the Ag News Daily, and still proudly, at least as far as I'm aware, not suffering from coronavirus. Joined today by Delaney Howell. Delaney, what is your current coronavirus update? I don't even want to talk about it. Oh, so you are sick, huh? You got the uh, you got the old CV, huh? No, I don't have it, but I don't want to talk oh. about it. I'm getting tired of hearing about it in the news cycles. Oh, my gosh. And honestly, at the end of the day, almost all of the movements that have happened in the market today have been coronavirus-related. Not just the market movements, but most of the news today is coronavirus-related. We've been hearing reports from all across the country of events being canceled, We've been hearing about schools being canceled. March Madness announced earlier today, I believe, that it will now be crowd-free. Yeah. We'll be playing basketball in empty stands. That Ugh, seems so this... strange. I can't even imagine like what that's going to feel like as a player. Because I think they thrive off the energy of the crowd. Oh, I would imagine. I, I, I couldn't. It would be like you or I giving a speech to no audience. How right. do you do it? I don't know. That's weird, huh? Yeah. It's going to be crazy. So I, I'm, this might actually be the first year in a while I like tune in to a March Madness just to see how different it feels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Looking at what are they going to show for audience shots because they won't have any. Right, right. Maybe they'll have like some cameraman out there waving uh, those vuvuzelas out or, out around or something. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know either. But uh, uh, do we have any non-coronavirus news we can start the report with, Delaney? <laughs> Uh, let's see. That's going to be a tough or one. Or do we want to do we want to no. rip this bandit off and hit coronavirus stuff right off the bat? Yeah, I mean, I think we should just get it out of the way. Okay, what do you got? Well, yeah, as you mentioned, there's schools. The thing that okay, I'm going to just go back to this for a second. But the thing that's killing me is that universities and colleges are going to potentially close campus. I was talking to Madison Honkamp, our intern, and she, they go to. Iowa State's spring break starts, well, tomorrow afternoon or whatever when you're done with class, but they could potentially not come back from spring break and that they would either just have classes all online or maybe not have classes at all. Like, I just, I understand that we're trying to be cognizant and concerned, but it just seems so overblown. That's So that's what we were talking in our office. Dan Hussey, who we've had on the podcast here, one of our brokers at Zayner, he's a Notre Dame grad. And he was saying that Notre Dame, I think their spring break is right now. They sent out an email to all of their students saying, hey, you know what? Don't come back. Uh, we're not going to have classes for the next four weeks. Uh, your classes will resume at some point in April, either online or in person. And Dan's comment was, okay, so we are taking the safest you know, age group of people for this virus. You know, if it gets on a college campus, 99% of the college campus is going to be able to just overcome it. That's the, that's the age group the risk level is the lowest amongst. So they might already have it, right? Mm-hmm. And we're sending them out into communities where they're going to be interacting with people of all ages, including the elderly. So we've just dispersed this virus even further. Wouldn't it make sense to keep all the college students on college campuses where if they catch right. the disease, worst they're going to do is you know spread it to whoever else is at the fraternity party, who's yeah. also going to be able to just cough a little bit, miss a few classes, and be good to go? Yeah, I don't know. I don't get it, but... but... Yeah, I, I don't either. So on a legislative side of things couple different pieces of news related to the coronavirus. We're seeing Congress, they're trying to essentially push an economic 
stimulus package through as uh, asked by President Trump to help with the economy that's rocked, of course, by the coronavirus. But lawmakers on one side of the aisle are using it as a way to expand USDA's food assistance programs. And they've said, actually, it's kind of folks on both sides of the aisle. And they've said, we don't want the virus to disproportionately impact those people who are low income and who normally would have access to nutrition assistance. They're saying this coronavirus thing could really impact those folks on SNAP and food stamp programs. And so we're seeing that trying that uh, essentially getting pushed through. We're also seeing the potential, I don't know what this is going to look like, for some sort of coronavirus bill that would grant funding, but they don't really give a lot of detail as to what that's going to look like. Okay. All right. So we're, we we just don't really know anything. No, we don't really know anything. But I think at the end of the day, you know, and I'm no proponent of government activity in the markets, generally speaking, but expanding SNAP makes a lot of sense. If people are going to have to miss work, and especially if they're lower income people, let's give them access to food. Let's make sure people aren't starving while this thing is, you know, shutting down events and, you know, canceling events. And that's going to impact wait staff and all sorts of predominantly lower-income Americans. So I think that's probably a good idea that they're talking about keeping them, obtaining their food somehow. Well, and the other piece of that is, uh, I guess another, I don't know if this is part of an initial package or another package, but Congress has been talking about, this this is loosely related to ag, it's more on the food side of things, but those folks that work in retail services such as fast food chains, if they get sick, a lot of those... People are hourly, so they don't have paid leave mm-hmm. of absence. And so Congress is looking at the potential to put together, you know, funding to pay those people if they do get sick from the coronavirus and or just encouraging those businesses to grant sick leave to their people. Oh, interesting. That makes sense, I suppose. I guess oh. so. Well, I've got some non-coronavirus news, Glennie. Can I uh, launch into that? Okay, great. Yes, so we have been talking for about the past three weeks of the potential for Argentinian farmers to cease grain exports for four days. Uh, Their four-day strike launched in response to the increase in export taxes on soybeans in particular, a move from 30% export tax to 33%. That four-day strike has started. In fact, we are now on day three of that four-day strike, and news out of Argentina is that grain operations are unimpacted. Basically, what the Argentinian uh, grain exporters are saying is that we had enough buildup prior to the strike that we have been able to continue exporting right on pace. I had mentioned in one of these earlier podcasts that this strike could lend support to U.S. exports if the Argentinians weren't able to meet their export commitments doesn't look like that's the case. They are able to continue shipping as expected. Uh, bulk carriers are expected to load one3 03 million metric tons of meals, either corn or excuse me, of soybean meal during this period. So they are continuing to export right on pace. So, you know, no big move for U.S. farmers, and I don't think it's doing what the Argentinian farmers had hoped when they were making a statement about these higher taxes, Delaney. Yes, I would agree with you there, Mike. And another thing that we've been continuing to watch, it doesn't seem like we're getting anywhere, as is the case maybe with people down in Argentina, but that is on an ag workers bill. We've seen another one introduced into Congress, this time by a member of the House Agriculture Committee, Congressman Ted Yoho of Florida. The new 
introduction of the labor certainty for food security agriculture is essentially a year-round agricultural guest worker program. Will it get passed? I don't know. I find it hard to believe, but uh, interesting that we have all of these bill. I don't even know. I'd, I'm going to have to look it up to see how many different ag labor bills we've seen introduced into Congress. Oh, yeah. I mean, this has to be at least a, a baker's dozen now. I mean, it seems like it's been right. 13 just since we've been paying attention to it. Right. Oof. Okay. Well, one of these days, one of them is probably going to get through, wouldn't you think? Sure. I don't know. Maybe by probability statistics or something. Exactly. I mean, the law of averages says right. something's got to sneak through somehow. But right. man, a little consistency would certainly be welcome, especially for livestock and uh, and tree crop producers who yes. have really been struggling to find good labor. Absolutely. And another producer that's been struggling this year is the Australian producer. We saw a new analysis come out from the Foreign Ag Services saying that, you know, usually Australia is a pretty big competitor for U.S. beef on the global marketplace this year. We're expecting to see their production and exports fall pretty sharply after drought, wildfire, and other problems that they've unfortunately been facing. They are forecasted to export just 1.4 million metric tons of beef this year, down from 1.7 million metric tons in 2019. And they said, you know, lack of pasture, high feed prices, drought wildfires, etc., is really going to result in very high cattle turnoff here in 2020 and going to see a really reduced herd size overall to the lowest they've seen in decades. I believe it. it has been a challenging year for Australian producers. That is a fact. That is a fact. It has also been a challenging year, unfortunately, for American ethanol producers, and that challenge has persisted. It was announced that ethanol production in the week ending March 6th fell to 1.044 million barrels per day, so down 35,000 barrels from the week before, roughly a 3% dip. And that means that uh, we really only burned through about 109 million bushels of corn to produce that ethanol. Uh, basically, this is, production is down as operating margins and production margins turned sharply negative, and uh, that is what is killing, or not killing, but making the ethanol industry struggle quite a little bit. Um, now, granted, we have seen some movement in corn prices, but the break in ethanol prices has been just as steep as been following the crude oil market. So it looks like these challenges are going to continue for a little while longer. Yeah, I don't think the hand sanitizer increase is going to help that out. Uh, it isn't yet. It isn't yet, but maybe, maybe. Everybody just get out there and buy a lot more hand sanitizer. <laughs> yeah, something Or go like buy that. some more bourbon. Sure. You know, if you can't, if you can't cure the disease or, or, you know, disinfect the disease from the outside, do it from the inside. Yeah. Get yourself liquored up enough that your body just fights it off naturally. That's great. I'm sure that's how drinking alcohol works, right? Great advice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Dr. Mike on the case. <laughs> Doctor. Oh, great. Reminder, I do not have an MD. I only spent seven years in college. Right. That's true. You're a couple years shy. Right, right. What other news do you have for us, Delaney? Well, I think this piece of news is very fitting since we're going to be talking about consumer trends in the grocery store and elsewhere. We saw a new study of consumer attitudes towards gene editing. So we're talking CRISPR technology, we're talking splicing and dicing, we're not talking GMOs. However, this new study found that, which is again actually by the FMI, Food Meat Institute, or what does that stand for? 
Oh, you put me on the spot. Food, food and Meat Institute, I okay. feel like it's probably right. If well, we're wrong, FMI folks, we yeah. apologize. <laughs> so this study looked at their attitudes towards those gene editing properties. And they showed that more than 50% of consumers surveyed didn't have any idea what that was, what gene editing was, but they associated it with GMOs. And so they view it very negatively. And so, you know, a lot of people in the industry were thinking that we'd have kind of a blank slate to write the narrative for gene editing, but it appears that's not the case. Consumers have already made their own misconceptions about this. Interesting. That's, it's a shame, but I, I can't say I'm too surprised. You know, you hear genes, you hear GMO, people go, ah, it's the same thing. Right. Hmm. All right. Well, I've got just one other piece of news before I'm ready to dive into the markets, Delaney, and this is uh, market-related, specifically U.S. soybean export-related. We've seen a couple major flash sales this week to China, specifically Monday and Tuesday. We saw exports of over 100,000 metric tons to China, and our friends over at AgriCensus have an update. They say that Chinese crushers are being forced to look at the Pacific Northwest for soybean sourcing because ports in Brazil are struggling as heavy rains lead to delays in getting supplies to those ports. Even though Brazilian soybeans are still considerably cheaper than U.S. beans, there's no guarantee that the Brazilians will be able to ship them on time. So Chinese producers, excuse me, crushers, who need to have beans to crush by mid-April have one place to go, and that is the good old U.S. of A., and they are stepping up, at least in asking questions about bids and basis levels, it appears to be as though they're ready, getting ready to pull the trigger on some sizable purchases. So we'll keep an eye on that. That would definitely be welcome news, specifically to our friends in the Dakotas, whose beans have languished with dollar-plus basis under the board mm -hmm. for the better part of two years. Yeah, no kidding. Actually, that does – I forgot one other piece of news that I think leads nicely into our markets. And kind of what you're saying there is – MFP 2020, it's still a question mark, but we saw quite a few producers testify at the House Ag Subcommittee hearings on Tuesday, again sharing that we're going to need to see market facilitation payment programs here in 2020 if, if we don't want to see a huge influx of Chapter 12 bankruptcies. All right, well, we've got the... President Trump saying one thing, and we've got the administration, namely Secretary right. Purdue at the USDA, saying the complete opposite. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see what ends up coming out of the tree in Washington, D.C. Will that money tree have a good harvest in 2020? Well, i got to say, I think uh, President Trump has a little more leveraging power than Secretary Purdue in this situation. Well, so I am inclined to agree with you. However, there are a lot of budgetary rules and restrictions which really leave – so the only reason we got MFP in 2019 was because Secretary Purdue was able to find a way to source funds out of the Commodity Credit Corporation mm -hmm. to secure these dollars for the American producer. You know, we were told that, oh, this is coming from the tariffs. No, it's not. The tariff money, I mean, it was probably a push. Tariffs raised the taxes we put on Americans through the tariffs was then paid out to other Americans, right. But the actual funding mechanism has to go through the USDA bureaucracy, and the only way that could have happened was through the CCC. And now that corporation, that federal, whatever, holding pen of money, is out of money. And so they're, they'll have to find a new way to fund it, which I think puts the ball in Secretary Purdue's court, because he's, uh, he's got the right nerds who can go through their thousands and thousands of layers of laws and figure out a solution if he wants one to be there. Mm. Maybe we shouldn't call but, them nerds in case they're listening. 
Oh, I, I think if they're in D.C. and they're writing policy, typically they are nerds and proud. <laughs> okay. They wear that as a badge of honor, is my experience. Noted. And I mean it with the utmost respect, Delaney, as, okay. as one well, would anticipate. Good. Good. Well, speaking of respect, folks, you got to have respect for these markets, especially on a day like today or a week like today, when the moves are powerful and sudden. What do you say, Delaney? Should we see where things wrapped up for the day? Let's do it. All right, folks, starting with the grain markets, we were red. We're red everywhere today. Grains were no exception. May corn down three cents at 374.5. December new crop down three and a half to finish at 377 even. In the soybean pit, the excuse me, May contract down three cents to close at 873 and a quarter. November down four and three quarters to close at 886 and three quarters. Wheat Chicago contract really the hardest hit today. The March contract, well, let's get March. May contract down nine and a half cents at five twelve and three quarters. December down six and a half at five thirty one and three quarters. Over in the world of livestock, we had big losses in the cattle complex. April live cattle down two dollars thirty seven and a half cents at one oh three oh seven fifty. June down two dollars twenty seven and a half to close at ninety seven twenty five. Feeder cattle April contract dropped four dollars forty two and a half cents, was able to climb off limit down in the April, finished today at one twenty three fifty two fifty. May, however, limit down daily four fifty trading limit to close at one twenty five twenty five. And in lean hogs, really again showing the most strength of the meat markets. April contract down a dollar twelve and a half at sixty three eighty seven fifty. The May down 80 cents, closed the day at 70.20. Looking over at the world of dairy in Class 3 milk today, the March contract dropped a penny to close at 16.32, with the April down 2 cents, wrapping up the day at 15.83. Without further ado, let's get into conversations about consumers' attitudes towards meat and produce. Well, as we continue to talk about consumer trends and headlines, especially those maybe divulged by mainstream media, we have to break down some of that noise with us today. Anne-Marie Roarink, owner of 210 Analytics. Anne-Marie, first of all, thanks so much for joining today. Oh, thank you for having me. Looking forward to this. So before we get into some of the nitty gritty of the reports and the data and studies that you've done looking at consumer trends, tell us a little bit about 210 Analytics and why you started the company. So I am what I would call a classic research geek. Uh, As long as I can remember, I have loved asking questions of people. And according to my mother, my favorite question was why, why, why all the time. And uh, I guess I translated that into my profession. Um, many of, of us, uh, you know, get a read on, on how things are moving in terms of sales increasing as a decreasing. But the really interesting part behind it, of course, is always the why. So I love talking to consumers to understand what is really going on and what is driving their behavior in meat and produce and other categories around the store. So that prompted me to uh, found uh, 210 Analytics. And I've been having a lot of fun trying to understand consumer shopping behavior ever since. Well, and that is why we are talking to you today. You were just uh, involved in a study called The Power of Meat and the Power of Produce, or two studies, I guess, and um, looking at how consumers appreciate or approach these two topics. And I want to dive into the power of meat first. Talk us through what is it you were looking at, and have you ever performed this type of survey before, or is this kind of the initial benchmark for how consumers are approaching the meat industry? 
the beauty about the power of meat is that it's actually been uh, 15 years of trends in the power of meat. So if you think about it, we started this research long before the recession, then could see how economic um, worst times actually affected meat. And now we can see how meat is doing during very good economic times. And we're also seeing how the millennial shopper is really changing that meat purchase. And to give you a quick sneak peek, you know, if you read a lot of the consumer press, there is so much out there about the supposed popularity of plant-based meat alternatives. And, you know, if you read those articles, you, you would just think that meat is doing horribly. Um, but the opposite is actually happening. Um, we see very good engagement with meat, including beef. In fact, beef had the strongest year that it's had in many, many years. Uh, meat continues to have 98% household penetration. Uh, sales were up 1% in dollars. They were up in volume. So people are absolutely still engaging with meat. And in fact, uh, they're a lot more engaging with meat than they are with plant-based meat alternatives. So I continue to see great strengths uh, in the meat category. And when you say engaging with meat, do you mean just buying it at the grocery store? Yeah, really across all the different metrics. So if we talk about engagement, we, of course, first of all, look at how many consumers buy these kinds of products. So first of all, for meat, 98% of U.S. households buy fresh meat from the meat department. Now, if we contrast that against the 14% that buy uh, plant-based meat alternatives, boom, there's a huge difference right there. Uh, then we see that people buy meat a lot of times throughout the year, and they're also buying a little bit more of it. So we saw great growth in beef. We saw it in chicken. And then, of course, we always look at the dollar sales as well as the actual pounds that are being purchased. And then we also look at the trends uh, below the actual uh, pounds and dollars as well. So, for instance, we see really good growth in an area that we call value added in the industry. And that's really all those items that grocery stores have today that allow people to spend uh, a little less time on preparation. So things like preformed burgers or meatballs or kebabs, those kinds of things are very in favor right now and driving big growth. Um, other areas that are popular are what we call production attributes. So people are looking to know a little bit more about the meat and poultry than they're buying. And that might be what was the treatment of the animal or where was it raised or who raised it and what are the brand values behind the meat and poultry that we're buying. So the whole idea of transparency is absolutely making it into the meat purchase as well. Um, so I do think ultimately the meat purchase is going to change a little bit over the next couple of years as millennials are spending more dollars and boomers are spending fewer dollars. Um, but the future of meat and poultry continues to be extremely bright. That is really good news. I'm sure for a lot of our listeners, we've got a lot of, uh, of protein producers of various stripes and sizes. But I was curious when you're performing this kind of research, how do you do it? Is this a census-type form that is mailed out? Are you standing in meat counters, uh, just walking up to random people? What does the survey look like when you're conducting this in-depth research? So it's actually a little bit of everything, and that makes my job so much fun. So we start off with what was the actual sales data. So we work closely with both IRI and Nielsen that actually have access to what is being sold at the store from what we call the, the point of purchase transaction, so the actual credit card or cash payments. So we start off with the performance itself. 
Um, but then, like I said, it's really about the why and the who and the what and the where and the when. And so then we engage uh, with an online survey of 1,500 shoppers. And those shoppers, as, as you indicated, reflect the census. So we make sure that we have different ages and different incomes and different regions and ethnicities. Um, and then we actually, yes, do go into store and we talk to people as well. And, and we say, okay, what make you just rifle through all these packages for the last five minutes? Like, what are you looking for? Or I saw that you're looking for promotional signage in the store. Um, you know, how important is price? So it's really a whole lot of different layers every single year. And all those layers together then create the new story um, as to what is happening in terms of what actually drives the sales dollars today, where my trends be moving tomorrow, um, to help producers out there as well as the grocery stores and really everybody uh, in, included in that um, distribution chain for meat and poultry. And so when you look at the meat side of things, as you mentioned, producers still want to eat meat, beef especially. When you look at the produce side of things, what do you see as far as consumer trends go there? I think a lot of times we think, oh, consumers want organic or non-GMO produce. Is that the case from the research? So interestingly, there is huge parallels between um, meat and produce in that regard. And so we have what we call conventional, which is meat and produce that is made the same way as it was made 30, 40 years ago without really a lot of focus on production claims like organic or non-GMO, or in the case of meat, it'd be no antibiotics. In the case of produce, it might be uh, non-GMO or local or seasonal. Um, and, and today in both areas of meat and produce, there is a, the, the vast majority of dollars are still coming from that conventional area. But what we have to keep in mind is, is we all probably uh, heard in 2016 that millennials became the biggest shopper generation. It was big news. It was all over uh, all the media headlines. And with it, a lot of us assume that, hey, millennials are the biggest generation. They must also be the bigger spenders, but they're not because we have to keep in mind they had big college debts and they don't have big households yet. They also started their career in the midst of a recession. So it took them several years to build up their income uh, potential. And what we're seeing now and as of really this year and last year is that boomers are still the majority dollar today in both meat and produce, but millennials are growing about two and a half times faster than average. So very, very quickly, we're seeing that dollar change over from the boomer generation to the millennial generation. So specific to your question about things like organic, today they only make up between 8 and 10% of sales depending on the category. But because they are so much more loved and sought out by the millennial generation, that is something that can start gearing up very quickly because they are seeking that story behind the product. Um, and, and the other thing is, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask you, we've been talking about millennials uh, seeking out that story for, well, as you mentioned, for about the past 10 years. Is that something you're seeing continue? Have millennials been fairly consistent in their desire to seek out the story? Or as household size grows, are they willing to go a little more conventional? So a little bit of both. Um, as we all know, a lot of these production attributes, whether it's organic or non-GMO, um, come at a little bit of a price differential. And as the household size grows, now there is a little bit more um, pressure on the dollar, um, on, on income. And so 
but at the same time, we're seeing a lot of shoppers go into organic when they have children because they believe it's important for their children to have organic produce. And so we actually see people sort of dip in and out of that organic uh, purchase depending on the item or they might seek organic for certain items like bananas and apples and berries. They're big ones. Um, they might also then engage if the items are on sale. So I absolutely think we're going to see uh, continued demand for all those areas and continued demand for understanding more because it's important to keep in mind this generation also believes in rewarding brands and retailers and, and producers who uh, align in their values. Um, so they are very big on things like animal welfare and taking care of the planet and preventing food waste and, and minimizing package waste. And so um, if brands are able um, to uh, to stress that and tell that story, then they absolutely have a great opportunity to continue to connect very well with millennials. And I guess as you look to the future, Anne-Marie, like you've mentioned here, and I read an article the other day that said millennials this year are poised to take over as the majority purchasing power compared to boomers who have been the majority purchasing power for so long. When you look at then how millennials yeah. are shaping food trends, what do you see as the future taking all those things into consideration? Oh, it's going to have a huge impact. And I think anybody that uh, is involved with food, whether you are a grower or a producer or, or you're a retail store, has to really keep this in mind. Um, if we think about millennials, and, and I heard a statistic that 80% of millennials are going to be parents come 2026. Uh, so again, that changes the nature of the purchase to begin with. But millennials, for instance, are more likely to buy online. Right now, online grocery shopping isn't very big yet, but once they start becoming that bigger basket, we're going to see more engagement online. How are you dealing with that? Um, like I said before, those value-added items, anything that is focused on convenience, it's huge among millennials. But on the other hand, they also love frozen foods. So how does fresh compete with frozen in that convenience space? Um, they look for smaller uh, item sizes as well uh, because they like to make a lot of more snackable dishes versus that traditional three-item carp, uh, protein, and a, um, and a veggie type of meal. So a lot of uh, impact, I think, going forward, um, but a lot of opportunity as well for, for smaller brands, smaller growers, uh, and, and really harvest the power of local and, and uh, you know, talk to millennials about the story behind the product. Fascinating. I've got one more question for you, and it's a question about how you at, uh, well, categorize a value add. This past weekend, I was at the grocery store, and I wanted to do some grilling, so I picked up some bacon-wrapped asparagus. So we're combining the power of meat with the power of produce in one value-added dish. How would that get exactly. counted in the survey? Would that be a value add for produce or for pork or both? Uh, well, um, more than anything, it depends on where in the store you bought it. And ah. so in this particular case, my guess it's in the produce department maybe or even in the deli department. And Actually, that's another huge area of growth. At the meat counter. Well, look at that. Then meat, then meat got the glory. Um, but, you know, you bring up a really good point. And that is the point that a lot of older shoppers thought about a meal from the perspective of the meat is the center of plate, then I find a veggie that goes along with the meat, and then I think of some kind of carb to go along with that. 
Uh, millennials are very, very different. They think of meat as more of a meal ingredient. They might actually eat two veggies instead of just one. They mix and match all sorts of items because it's really about that meal adventure. Um, so your example, I think, is absolutely perfect to say, you know, the world is changing and it's not about one versus the other, but it's really opportunity uh, all around. Huh. Well, this has been very fascinating stuff, Anne-Marie. If folks would like to read either report, how can they find those? Uh, so the Power of Produce is published by the Food Marketing Institute. So uh, you'll find it on the FMI.org website. And the Power of Produce is co-owned by the North American Meat Institute and FMI. Um, and you'll find it on either website. And, of course, I welcome any and all questions. So I'd say email me or find me online on LinkedIn and happy to talk more. Fantastic. Well, Anne-Marie, thank you so much for joining today. Well, thanks for having me. This was uh, wonderful. Well, I always love having conversations about why consumers do what they do. I really nerd out on that stuff, but I think she had some great points to make there. And and really, it's the media hyping this stuff up. People are not turning away from animal agriculture. They still value what we produce, animal and food, food uh, agriculture, I should say. Yeah, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, meat's delicious. You know, you can you can try to sell me or anybody a black bean processed patty pea protein burger patty thing, and it, it's fine if I have no other options. But if I've got access to a half-pound beef burger, oh, my goodness, it's going to taste a billion times better. It's what I'm going to get 99.9% .9 of the time unless I have, you know, ethical reasons or health reasons to look elsewhere. Yeah, I was not – my mouth was not watering when you're talking about the black bean burger, but thinking about a nice, juicy burger, I am. Right. Folks, if you want a juicy slice of Ag News every day, you're doing it right. You're listening to the Ag News Daily podcast. Listen to our past episodes on the website at agnewsdaily.com and always interact with us on social media. Find us on the web, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram at Ag News Daily. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go. Let's let them go.